The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. So good to see you here today. As Cody said, um, you know, it's really hard to find a song about a dog returning to its vomit that you want to sing um, on a Sunday morning. Uh, one of the conversations that we had this past Monday in our, in our pastor review for the text is, like, what, what verses are we going to read um, beforehand, and what songs are we going to sing in the midst of this? And just kind of navigating through that this week, one of the things that, that I've just learned in my time as a follower of Christ is we just... Like, we just have to accept the Bible as it presents itself. Does that make sense? Like, the Bible is just, it just is, it is what it is. And I'll try not to remember, I actually had this, I was going to talk a little bit about this a little later, but I'll try and not talk about it again. Um, but as we were reading through Second uh, Peter 2, I said something like, you know, I really wish that Peter, I wish that Peter would have written this a little bit differently, Right? This would have been easier, like from a linear standpoint, this would have been much easier for him, for him to write this. It would have been easier for me to preach it if he would have written this differently. And very quickly, both Zane and Cody um, parroted back words to me that you've heard me say um, probably a thousand times. Well, John, that's because the Bible isn't written to us, it's written for us. And Peter had no idea that he, what he was writing was going to be read 2,000 years from now. And I was like, okay, finally you guys are getting what I'm saying, which really makes me happy. Um, one of the things that, that is our desire, one of the things that we are training you to do is we want to be a culture that trains you to grow in your wisdom and knowledge of God in a way that leads you to transformation. See, there's a way to read and understand the Bible. There's a way to grow in wisdom and knowledge that, that's head knowledge, right? But it doesn't necessarily lead you to transformation. So our desire for you is that you would grow, that you would read and learn and understand Scripture in a way that you would actually be transformed by it. So one of the things that we've done, um, we've been using the YouVersion app, you know this, we've been using the YouVersion app for a few years now, and this week we actually decided to do something a little bit differently. This was part of our conversation on Monday into what training people uh, for transformation looks like. What we have been doing, if you've been following along with us on Sunday mornings, what we have been doing is we like been reading the text, and then if it refers to another text in the Bible, we've been inserting that text. So if you're really familiar with what we've been doing with version, that's what we've been doing. And part of our conversation is, has been like what we're really doing there is we're really forcing people to do the thing that we want them to do. Right? We're forcing this culture change to where you can't help but read the text. But this week we decided to do something different. We did not include all of those texts, like the full text in the version. We put a little text box in that says, if you want to learn more about this topic, go back and read Genesis 6, 1-4. See, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like for us as individual people to learn and grow on our own. To no longer rely on and depend on someone else to feed me. Uh, maybe you know, maybe you've heard of the comedian uh, Jonathan Acuff. Uh, he's a Christian. And one of the things he said one time, I was at a student ministry conference where he was, uh, it's this concept of feeding yourself. 
right? I don't, I don't, I don't know how to feed myself. I, I'm not being fed. And, and Acuff says something to the effect of, well, when you are two months old or six months old or eight months old, I'll feed you all day long. But when you're five, here's a spoon, feed yourself. See, as Christians, our job Our responsibility, our role is to grow in our holiness and is to take responsibility for that. So we want to try and help you as much as we can. I don't know that this is what we're going to do forever. We've been doing it for two years. We changed it up. We'll probably do this for a little while and then we'll figure out some new thing, some new twist to throw in there that will frustrate you and hopefully will lead you to grow. But it's by design, and I just want you to know that because that's our desire, is to create a culture that trains you to grow in your wisdom and knowledge that leads to transformation. The last thing we need, the last thing our culture needs is Christians who aren't transformed. It's people who know all of the things, but they're not transformed. So in 1 Peter, we talked about this, or 2 Peter 1, we talked about this last week. Be holy as I am holy, as God is holy. That's, that's the message of 2 Peter chapter 1. Be holy. Because God has given us everything that we need for a holy life. That's what the scripture tells us. We must make every effort to respond. So because of what God has done, we have to respond. And that's an effort. And I love that that word effort is in there because it's intentional. It's on purpose. That word effort is not try. It's not try, it's train. And the holiness that God calls his people to is going to demand something of us. It's going to demand something from us. It's persistent and consistent training and growth. It's a lifelong pursuit. And lest any of us think that we're going to get to a point in our Christian walk where, where we don't have to train anymore, where we don't have to continue to grow I have some really bad news for you. That's not what the Bible says about the Christian life. What the Bible tells us about the Christian life is it's something that that we are to live a life in pursuit of. Pursuing holiness because holiness doesn't just happen. And it's those things. It's it's 2 Peter 1 verses 5 to 7. I'm going to read it. He says, in view of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. It's faith alone that saves us, right? It's Jesus plus Nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So, so it's faith that saves us. But it's all of these other things that sustain us. It's these other things that we make every effort to pursue that sustains our lives. And this only happens when we trust and we depend on the presence of Jesus. That's Peter's argument in 2 Peter 1. He's, he's telling his readers, and, and it's for us. He's saying, I, this isn't just some kind of gumdrops and lollipops lifestyle that I'm telling you about. See, because Jesus is real, because I, if I'm Peter writing this, because I saw Peter on the mountain, because I saw him transfigured, I saw him in the flesh. He pulled me out of the water when I stopped believing. He forgave me 
after he was resurrected. Because of this presence, this very real presence of Jesus, what, what God wants us to do is to live a certain way, to live in a sustained way. And this proves that the words of the, the, words of the prophets and, and all the Old Testament writers were true, but that's, not, but that's not all that's going on. There's something that we need to be aware of, and that's chapter 2. And this is a really dark chapter. Again, as we were reading through this, I'm like, man, Peter, why did you write this this way? Why did you just give a bleak outlook on life? And then I remembered that when this letter was read to its original audience, like they didn't spend three weeks on it, right? They just read it. So this is 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 9. I would love for you to follow along with me. But there were also false prophets in Israel. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they'll make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago and their destruction will not be delayed. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they're being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. This is, what, this is what's really going on in these first nine verses. What Peter is saying is, there are false teachers, and their, their message is simple. This is the subtext of what they're saying. There's no such thing as God's judgment. That's what these false teachers are claiming. There's no such thing as God's judgment. So because of that, because God is not going to judge people, be greedy, be lustful. Live, like, live your best life. Do what you want to do. And if we were to take a step back, we see and we hear and we experience that, those kinds of ideas today. God is love and he just wants people to be happy. Jesus never judged anyone. After all, he told the, he told the woman caught in adultery that he wasn't going to condemn her. Right? These, are the, these are the messages that we hear about God. And they're not, they're not true. There is a judgment. And Peter has a response to this. Just as he said in the first chapter, he said something like, we're not making up clever stories, right? We're here. I'm sharing all of these things with you. I'm telling you about what a holy life looks like. And we're not making any of this stuff up because we saw Jesus And what Peter's going to do in these first nine verses is critical for us to understand. 
He's going to share that there is historical precedence for God's judgment on wicked people. Does that make sense? Like he's going to look back into what we call the Old Testament as a counterweight to what these false teachers are saying. He's going to say, you know, they're saying that there's no judgment, but I actually have historical evidence that that's simply not true. And the thing that I really, one of the things that I really want you to get today as we read through this is Peter is sharing these things as history. He's sharing them as history. See, sometimes we get into this space where we, like we read Noah's story of the flood and we think, well, that really didn't happen. And that's just kind of a story and it's a metaphor and it's an allegory. Well, Peter is giving no indication in 2 Peter 2 that he views that as allegory. We do the same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. That didn't really happen. Sounds like a great story, but Peter's not treating it that way. Peter is treating these things as history, and it's really important for us to understand. And this is where what I said earlier is going to come into play. The first thing he talks about is rebellious angels. If you want to know more about that, I suggest later today you go back and you read Genesis 6, 1 to 4. It talks about that. That's in your version app. Not the verses, the text. I want you to go back and research that on your own. He talks about Noah and the flood, and that's Genesis 6, 6 through 8, 22. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot, and that's Genesis 19, verses 1 to 29. So what Peter is doing is he is using history as demonstrations of what happens when people think that God is not going to judge them. When people live their own way, do their own thing, flaunt their sinfulness in front of God. We think we're getting away with it. What Peter is doing, he's saying, well, history really doesn't demonstrate that that's true. Here are three stories that you, readers of 2 Peter, should read. But I don't want you to miss something here. Like if there was anything, if there was anything, and this is what Cody talked about earlier, like if there was any kind of hope in this chapter at all. It's, it's, verse, um, it's verse 9. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. That's the thing that we need to recognize. God's mercy. God's mercy. See, Noah and seven people in his family were saved. Peter tells us that Noah warned the world of God's righteousness. And as I'm thinking about this text and praying about this text, and of course I went back and I looked in the story of Noah, one of the most interesting things I saw was there's not any indication that Noah like stood up on a rock in front of all of the people of his day and preached a sermon to them talking about God's righteousness. There's no evidence of that, right? If Noah was alive during a time, or Facebook was around during a time of, time of Noah, there's no Facebook posts that he's making about the end is near. He's not sharing memes with people. He's, he's not doing this. So a question that we have to rightly ask is, well, how did Noah do this? How did Noah warn the world of God's righteous judgment? How did he do this? 
And here's what I think. He obediently built an ark. See, what Noah did was he lived in a way that was consistent with the promise he had received from God. God told him that he was going to flood the earth. God told him to build an ark. And then Noah did the craziest thing ever. He followed God's instructions. He was just obedient. And I think that there's something in there for us. We have scripture. We read what God tells us to do. We read the way that God is calling us to be obedient. And typically, our way to respond is, like, we want all this proof. We want all this evidence. We want to see. We want to wait. We want to pray more. We want to talk to more people. We want, we want all the stars to align. We want to do all of these things. And that's not what we see in Noah. What we see in Noah is a response to God's call. Noah was simply obedient. And obedience is what it looks like to warn the world of God's righteousness. See, there's a flood coming. God is righteous. God's a judge. I don't want to die in it, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to build the ark. That is warning the people of God's righteousness. And then he talks about Lot. He tells us that he was righteous because he was sick of the immorality of the people around him. In fact, he was tormented by it. I would really love for you to go back and read that whole Lot story. It is, we've talked about some crazy things. That Lot story is crazy. We're going to talk about Genesis later this year. We're going, to, we're going to cover the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And Lot is, Lot is a crazy story. But what it tells us is Lot was righteous because he was sick of the immorality of the people around him. He was sick of it. He lived differently. And what Peter is telling us is simple. In the midst of, of these false teachers and in the midst of the corruption of the world, there's a way to live in righteousness. There's a way to be obedient to what God calls us to. We don't have to get wrapped up in the way of the world. We don't have to do the things that the world does. There's a way to be separate. And that way is really simple. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. And moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. See, there are times where we we treat this we treat this Christian thing like it's the hardest thing in the entire world. And it's hard. But it's about obedience. It's about training in righteousness. And I don't know if you've ever trained for something, but sometimes you fail. That's called training. That's what happens when you're training. I remember this was probably, this was probably 10 years ago. I, I, I've heard this quote. You've probably heard it too. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Like, 
Um, my wife will tell me later that that's not the definition of insanity, and I agree with her it's not. But I posted that comment one time, and someone said to me, this was one of my students in Cedar Rapids. He said, well, that sounds a lot like practice. Okay. Like, now we're on to something, right? Like, that's training. Sometimes we're going to fail. But with training, we're training, we're training, we're training. Let's read verses 10 through 16. He's especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. But the angels, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings. These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand, and like animals, they'll be destroyed. Their destruction is their reward for the harm they've done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception, even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. They commit adultery with their own eyes, and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin, and they are well-trained in greed. They live under God's curse. They've, followed, they've wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. Here's what Peter is doing in these verses here. He's telling us about the character and the behavior of false teachers. He's telling his readers, he's telling us, this is what false teachers look like. This is what false teachers act like. And this is who false teachers are. So when we're sort of wondering the answers to those questions, how, how can we know? How can we recognize it would do well for us to read through this text because it tells us. It tells us their character. It tells us their behaviors. It's given us little alarm bells. God has done that for us. He says they give in to their own sexual desires and they hate authority. They underestimate the spiritual enemy. See, that's in this part where he says... Um, these people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. That's what's going on here is they're underestimating their spiritual enemy. They don't think their spiritual enemy is real. They think the spiritual enemy is Satan with the pointy ears and the tail. That's their image of the devil. They underestimate. And this is a warning to us. I think there are times where we underestimate our spiritual enemy. There are times where we underestimate false teachers. There are times where we underestimate false teachings. These people, Peter says, are proud and arrogant. And when we underestimate false teachers, when we don't take them seriously, we are demonstrating that same pride and that same arrogance. When we think that we're in a place like we would just never fall for that. That is the height of pride and arrogance. See, Peter is warning his readers. 
And I really wish that this is the point where Peter would have kind of given us a strategy, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if Peter would have thought, hey, some guy named John Mulholland is going to preach this text in Scott's Bluff in 2023, so I'm going to help him out by giving him a strategy. Well, Peter doesn't do that. Because what Peter has done earlier in the text is he's talked about a way to learn and grow in our wisdom and knowledge of God that leads to transformation. That's, that's the point of 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7. Like, that's how we do it. So what we did then for, for a few minutes in our conversation was, was we talked about, like, we went outside of 2 Peter, and, and what are some ways? Like, what are some strategies that we have? And, like, this is going to be the biggest letdown in the world because it's not, you're not going to hear anything that we haven't already talked about. It's nothing new. It's not going to be a surprise. So the first thing I want to talk about is Colossians 2.8, and I'm just going to read this text. Paul wrote this. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from God. So here's strategy number one. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking. You know this just from your normal life. If something sounds too good to be true, what is it? It's too good to be true. It just is. So the way a strategy for us is to be on guard and not be captured with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. If it sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true. If it sounds like it's ridiculous, it's because it's ridiculous. Ann and I were watching TV last night, and maybe you've seen this commercial. It's, um, it's like this little foot pedal device. Have you seen that? Um, and we had like a 10-minute debate about this last night. Um, one of the things they said on this little foot pedal device is, is it, is it, strengthens your bo- it strengthens your legs without putting any strain on your muscles. Okay. That's not the way that works. I get it's, it increases circulation. Like it does all those things. I think those things are 100% true. But if it does not put strain on your muscles, it will not strengthen your muscles. Okay, to me, honestly, that is high-sounding nonsense. That's a way to sell a whole bunch of these things, right? We want to be on guard. We want to be alert for these things. Here's, here's, a, here's another strategy. This is in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be talking more about this here in a few months. We're going to start a series going through the uh, two books of Thessalonians. But in Acts 17, verses 10 to 12, Paul writes this, or excuse me, Luke writes this about Paul. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. 
Did you hear why they were described as open-minded? Because they listened to what Paul said and they compared what he said to the Bible. See, here's what our culture says. Our culture says, you're closed-minded if you follow the Bible. Our culture says, you're closed-minded if you obey the Bible. Our culture says, you're closed-minded if you trust the Bible. That sounds like high-minded philosophy to me. See, the reason, the reason Luke attributes this phrase open-minded to them was because they searched the scriptures. See, what these people in Berea were doing is they were hearing what Paul was saying and they're like, "Mm, you know, I don't know if that's true. I know, I'm like, I'm going to go back, I'm going to find that. This would have been immeasurably more difficult than in our day. Like they would have had to unroll a scroll and find the spot on the scroll. This is the easiest thing in the world for you to do. We tell you what verses we're going to read in advance. And you can just follow along. And here's the thing, maybe that sounds a little circular reasoning, like we're telling you what it says and here's our proof. There are a thousand different Bible translations out there. See, as Christians, it is our responsibility to grow in wisdom and knowledge in a way that leads to transformation. So your responsibility is to follow along in your Bible. That's why we tell you every week. Today, we're going to read from this. So you can follow along. So you can learn and grow. See, this is your responsibility. We want you to do this. We, like we want you to fact check us. We're totally comfortable with that. We encourage you to do that. So a strategy, a strategy to be aware of false teachers and false teachings is to know what the Bible says. I know that's nothing new. If you've been in church for more than two and a half seconds, you've heard someone say that. But this is why we do it. Because we have a very real spiritual enemy. And there are very real, and we're going to talk about this in a moment. There are really very real spiritual implications and consequences of following false teachers. So we need to be aware. And here's, here's Jude 4. Don't worry, Jude only has one chapter, so it's literally Jude 4. I say this, actually let's go back to three. Dear friends, I've been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Doesn't that sound a lot like what was going on in Second Peter? The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. Doesn't that sound like Second Peter? For they've denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I know that we think that, that there are no people who have wormed their way into Westway Christian Church. Like, we would love to think that. Wouldn't that just be great? Wouldn't that be lollipops and gumdrops? 
Man, but it's just not true. It's not true. We need to be aware of this. We need to recognize that there, there is an effort, a concerted effort to lead each and every one of us astray. And those spiritual enemies, like, they're going hard at us. Their goal is to deceive. And then he closes with these words about Balaam. Numbers chapter 22 to 24. I encourage you to go back and read that this week. I recently heard that the book of Numbers is God's Excel spreadsheet, which I think is a great analogy. But there's more to Numbers than just Numbers. And we have to ask the question, why, why is Peter going at this so hard? Like when, other than verse 9, like when are we going to get some relief? Well, not in the last several verses. These people, referring to false teachers, are as useless as dried up springs or as a mist blown away by the wind. They're doomed to blackest darkness. They brag about themselves with empty foolish boasting with an appeal to twisted sexual desires. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from the lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they're worse off than before. It would be better if they'd never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. This is, this is an amazingly graphic section of scripture. False teachers trick people and lure them back into who they were before Christ. See, they promise freedom. What these false teachers say is, you know, just do whatever you want. Live your best life. The thing we all tell our kids at graduation, which is the worst advice in history, follow your heart. Do what you think is best. So this is what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us that, that if we would all just, like, you do you. If you just do that, then what we'll have is, is a perfect society. Because everyone will just be good. Everyone will just do their thing. Several years ago, we went through the book of Judges. And I want to remind you of the phrase that comes at the end of the book. It actually is said four times. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. See, what happens is sometimes we read the book of Judges and we think, why, like, why was God doing this? Why is God judging his people? Why is he being so harsh? Why, is he, why, is, why are all of these things taking place? But it's not till the end that we're told the problem is not God's justice. The problem is not that God doesn't love his people. The problem is there's a group of people who only do what's right in their own eyes. And don't be surprised when 
Some people think that murder is justifiable. Don't be surprised when people think the most heinous of, of crimes, the most heinous of activities, don't be surprised when someone justifies that. Don't we all know someone who's justified their sin? Haven't we all been someone who's justified our sin? Like, I know what the Bible says, but God told me, like, me and God have a relationship. The Holy Spirit told me, and Scripture doesn't allow that. See, freedom to do whatever is right seems like a great plan, but it doesn't lead to a utopian society. It actually leads to hell. It leads to judges. It leads to people doing whatever they want to. And then God comes along and he judges, and we have the audacity to judge God for his justice. There's a real consequence for being a false teacher. There's a real consequence for following false teachers. There's a real consequence for following false teachers. And that's this last part of the text. And over, the, over my time as a, as a Christian, this, is, this has been a question I've been asked a number of times because this, this text seems to, seems to make some pretty strong statements to us. Usually that, that question is about eternal security. Right, so I read this and I see that there's a way to sin and I ask this question like, can I lose my salvation? You ever been asked that question? You ever wondered the answer to that question? Can I lose my salvation? How can I know if I'm really saved? If I lose my salvation, can I get it back? If you can get it back, how many times can I get it back? Is there a cutoff point? One of the things I've heard, this is like six years in now at Westway, like Westway Christian Church teaches that you can lose your salvation. That's a constant refrain from people that I've heard. So does Westway teach that? Well, let's talk a little bit about this for a minute. Can I lose my salvation? I love, I love Mike Andrews' answer to that question. You mean like I lose my keys? Like I was having this conversation with our son John about this earlier this week because I knew we were going to talk about this. And he did this really funny thing. Like he acted like he woke up in the morning. He's like, oh, where's my salvation? Okay. When we talk about this, like we don't lose our salvation like that. We don't lose our salvation like, we, like I lose my car keys, okay? Where all of a sudden, one day I wake up and I'm just like, I didn't read my Bible enough last week, so my salvation must be in jeopardy. I didn't pray enough, so my salvation's in jeopardy. I didn't do this thing enough, so my salvation's in jeopardy. Like, that's not what the Bible says. Can I lose my salvation? Not like you lose your keys, not like you lose your cell phone. Not like we lose all of the things that we lose. See, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is like, what does the Bible say about this stuff? I had a convert, one of the people I had a conversation with about this topic last week 
said, I know someone who this person like listens to every single thing that the preacher says. And that's like their standard. Now, that's not a bad thing. But all the things that we've been talking about today, you probably ought to fact check, right? So this person says, this person in my life always listens no matter what the preacher says. Like that must be what the truth is. And then this person said, and then that person came here to us and heard you say this an opposite way about this particular topic. And then this person's like, I, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to believe. Right? Because I went to one church, I heard this. I went to another church and I hear that. Like, what am I supposed to believe? And this person gave this other person the best advice. What does the Bible say? So what, is, what does the Bible say? doesn't matter what this pastor says about this topic or that pastor says about this topic. Like, I'm not going to go all in on that. I'm not going to go all in on what a church says about a particular thing. Like, I want to read what the Bible says. So when I, like, when I read this, and when people escape the wickedness of the world by knowing their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they're worse off than before. It would be better if they'd never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then to reject the command they were given to live a holy life. So my question is this. According to what the Bible says, can a person walk away from their salvation? This isn't about losing anything. This isn't about something that's being taken from us. Like scripture talks about, we're in, we're in the palm of God's hand. Like what's there? Nothing can be taken. And this text seems to paint a picture for us that there is a way for me to walk away from my relationship with Jesus Christ. I can do that. You can do that. It's not losing your salvation. And what I want to encourage you in, in the midst of this conversation is, I don't want you to live in fear. I don't want you to be, be that person, and I know there's at least one of you in here. I don't want you to be that person that's, that's constantly living in fear that, you, that you're going to lose your salvation. That the thing you did yesterday is too much for God to forgive you. I don't want you to live in that fear. I want you to have that fear. You can be confident. You can trust in the work that God has done. I don't want you to live in that fear because of your sinfulness, because of your ongoing sin. We don't want to sin anymore. We don't have to live in fear. And here's the other thing I want to do this morning. Because I think some of you, and I know some of you are in here, are living with a false assurance of your salvation. See, what you have done is you've decided that you're a Christian because you did something that makes you a Christian. And now it doesn't matter how you live your life. Because after all, you're saved by faith. You're saved by grace. So you can do whatever you want to and all sins are covered. See, that's not the image that we have in this text. There's a way, there's a way for us to walk away from our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And I want to encourage you that that way is found in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 7. It's training in righteousness. Not to add to our salvation, but because we are saved. So what if you're the person that has walked away? What, like, what should I do? I know it. I know I've walked away. Repent. Easiest thing in the entire world. Just come back to God. Acknowledge your sin and come back. You cannot out-sin God's grace. If you are repentant, if you walk away from God, you're not covered under God's grace. If you are returning to God, you are. What if you've walked away a million times? Repent. Come back. Scripture tells us that his mercies are new every morning. And oh my goodness, thank God. Right? His mercies are new every morning. So every day when you wake up, every morning when you wake up, like you have done a hard reboot of your system. You get to embrace the work that God has for you that day again. You're in training. Doesn't matter how you trained yesterday. Only matters how you train today. And this is why we must make every effort to respond to God's promises, as Peter tells us. This is why we must work hard to prove that we're really among those whom God has called and chosen. And it's why Peter uses the concept of reminding, remembering, and not forgetting more than 10 times in 60 verses. Reminding, 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 reminding. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away. So we have an opportunity to respond to what God has done for us. To live in faith. To act upon faith. To serve him and love him and be obedient in a way that brings him glory and gives us new life. And my hope for you this week, like when you're reading this really dark chapter, you would see the hope that God provides mercy and grace. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your word this morning. I'm thankful that you love us enough to tell us the truth. You are not afraid to confront us with the reality of our own sinfulness. You are not afraid to share with us the consequences of our willing continuation of sin. And you are also not afraid to reveal to us the way out. And that's your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.